Welcome to Terminal Talk, lucky number 13. 13. Um, this was originally slated to be a discussion on mainframe performance, and uh, it just kind of went off the rails right in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the whole idea of having somebody come in who's relatively new to performance, uh, like Joe, I thought it'd be really cool to kind of see how somebody gets started. Uh, the thing is that once we started talking to Joe about what he did before he started performance, that seemed kind of more important to listen to. We, we do a lot of talking about careers and, and career paths here on, on the mainframe platform. And, you know, performance is, is indeed interesting. It seemed, the, more, the more we talked to him, the more we found out it's one of those things you can't just jump right into. You have to know where all those meters and all, where all the knobs and buttons are. And uh, so we ended up just talking about a lot of the meters and knobs. Well, and the fact that here's a guy who really started out somewhere else and became interested in performance. So the understanding of those other components made him a perfect candidate for doing performance. So if you're interested in VSM, RSM, uh, GRS, any of those three-letter acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) And a few more. And a few more. This is going to be a good one to listen to. Joe Gentile. Episode number 13 on Terminal. Set your reader to receive. You're being transmitted another episode of Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. So we're here with uh, Joe Gentili, who is a performance, a new performance person. Um, Could you start by telling us, like, why did you want a performance? What what drove you there? Well, actually, uh, a few months ago. My manager in one of my one-on-ones said, hey, Joe, I've got an opportunity for you, and uh, it's in the performance org. So uh, I shopped around the idea with some of my mentors, and a lot of people thought that performance is a really great area to go into. A lot of focus. Clients are always concerned about performance of their applications and new workloads. That's um, good because generally when when a manager says to you, I have an opportunity for you, it's it's a good time to run. Right, yeah. We have an opportunity for moving to this fantastic office down the hallway next to the bathroom. Yeah, that was that was an interesting opportunity. Anyway, moving right along. <laughs> but what did you do before uh, you moved over to performance? So I worked in ZOS development and core technologies for about nine years. Uh, especially in the components GRS, Global Resource Serialization, and System Logger, and RSM, Real Storage Manager. Awesome. All the important stuff. So that's then moving from there to, to performance, that just makes sense, right? Totally. Well, RSM is a pretty performance-sensitive component. So uh, back a couple years ago, I got involved in some performance analysis of RSM, but kind of on the development side. And they have some pretty cool tools like uh, PSW sampling and things like that so that you can actually measure where your program is spending CPU time. And uh, so that did kind of pique my interest. Can you explain, uh, like I'm five, perhaps uh, what RSM is and what it does? Yeah. (laughs) RSM is basically a memory manager. So I'm sure that this community understands virtual memory very well. And uh, on ZOS, it's like 10 times more complicated, right? But 
RSM basically makes sure that uh, when your program requests memory from the system, that it's actually fulfilled with a real frame of uh, memory so that you can uh, write to it and nobody else is using that. Okay, so it manages the integrity of the, the storage that you're getting. Yeah, so RSM is the real storage manager for ZOS. It's our memory manager. So basically it fulfills requests for dynamic memory. And um, when a system or when a program, I mean, requests memory from the system, that request goes through several, several levels. It goes through... VSM, Virtual Storage Manager, which invokes RSM. Uh-huh. And so Virtual Storage Manager kind of takes care of the uh, allocating and slicing and dicing of virtual memory. And then RSM deals with real memory and kind of communicates back to VSM, here's your frame, and you can, you know, uh, chop it up any way that you see fit. Okay, so is it two different types of calls, or is it that VSM deals directly with RSM? VSM deals directly with RSM for 31-bit memory. For 64-bit, the program deals with RSM directly through the IARV64 API. Wow. That's a lot of, a lot of words. So explain <laughs> to me then, uh, here I am, I'm a C programmer, and I do a malloc. How does it get through to – can you kind of take us through what that what that would look like to get down to actually getting that memory? So a malloc would probably on ZOS go through the language environment library that's associated with malloc. Um, and that would in turn invoke either a get main or a storage obtain or maybe it would get memory from the LE heap. They have their own heap. Um, so that you can sort of optimize the uh, get main process by getting a whole bunch of storage up front instead of incurring the path length of continually going through all those service calls every time. So language environment is going to get a block of memory for all the programs that are going to use it, right, or at least this program that's going to use it. Can you kind of just take us through that, uh, that get main process? Absolutely. So, yes, LE is going to, in some way, uh, do a get main, which will invo- invoke VSM. And from there, VSM is going to say, okay, well, this, this is the size of the request. I'm going to break that up into pages and call RSM this many times or pass a range. I'm not ex- exactly sure of the details, but, yeah, well, but it, it, it handles the, all that stuff. That's the yeah, gist of it. That's the- <laughs> so can can you just uh, – I know this isn't what we asked you to come here for, but I think this is kind of interesting. Yeah, sure. Uh, can, can you tell us – so RSM is responsible for for kind of really managing the memory. It must have to work with, with RACF or Top Secret or ACF2, one of the security products, to do that. Is that part of that or do you do – you, do you do that after? Is GetMain responsible for doing that first and then you do just real memory management through through RSM? Or? Well, uh, good question. So a lot of the authorized, unauthorized stuff has to do with your PSW execution key. So if you're, say, a supervisor key zero program, you can do a lot more in terms of accessing virtual memory 
Uh, you can access system memory. You can run amok. You know, you can easily <laughs> take down the system. Right. So if you're a problem state key eight program, then what you can do and what you can touch is much uh, is a lot less than supervisor state. A right. Pro- and I'm sorry. A problem state key eight. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have knowledge of all the storage keys, or is that is sure? That, okay. A so bit. can you kind of just step through? First of all, why do we have uh, storage keys in the first place? Well, basically for keeping integrity of the system. It's it's for protecting, um, say, customer data that uh, is used on the system. So there's 15 PSW execution keys that correspond to storage keys. The key is actually kept architecturally uh, in the frame itself. So each frame, 4K frame, has a storage key associated with it. And... Unless you're running key zero, basically that has to match. I mean, there's lots of exceptions, and I don't want to get into them all. Right. But if you're key eight, which is the first problem state key, or like you know, user versus admin type concept, but in applications instead of people, then you can really only look at storage that's in your key, and you cannot change the key of the storage. Right. You can do a get main and say I want it to be key whatever. Uh, and that might even be a restricted option. Sounds like it probably should be. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And But usually when you do a get main or a request for storage, you just get it back in whatever your execution key is. Okay. This is one of the things that makes uh, mainframe different is this concept of when I get storage, it, it can be set to a very specific um, kind of – security boundaries, right? So problem program or key eight is is where the actual application normally runs. Um, but each of those different key states generally has something to do with a different, either a different component or a different security requirement. Or um, can, can you describe some of the ones that aren't zero and eight? Uh, there are some like special conventions for keys like one, five, seven, things like that. Nine, nine is a cool one. I think because it can be read by any other key, which you might not expect. Yeah, read, read but not changed. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So if you want to put data where you want everybody to be able to look at it, but not touch it, you throw it in nine. Yeah. Is the word pretty sure? Is the word problem here the way the word the way that I'm thinking of it? Like this is a problem, or like is it a just like a child? Right. Or is no, it just a differentiator? This is, this is the problem you're trying. The application oh, is associated okay. with a problem you're trying to solve. That's right? interesting. Right. Okay. So huh. that's why they call it problem. That's a, it's the first time I've heard about that. That's because you're not old. Those of us who have been around a while are used to dealing with uh, problems. Oh, I'm trying to solve this particular problem. Oh, different horses for courses. Moving right along. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we've talked a little bit about um, uh, the storage keys and, and how – uh, how that how important that is from a security perspective, and I and I'm glad that you brought it up because I'm always trying to make sure people understand key differences between what you do on Z compared to what you do in in other platforms. And they have on other platforms um, this concept of security, but it's not quite as granular as this. And I think that's an important distinction. So we talked about that a little bit. You talked about RSM. You also mentioned uh, GRS, which is something else you worked on. Could right. you kind of describe that a little bit as well? Okay, sure. GRS. We'll, we'll eventually get to performance, <laughs> I swear. <laughs> well, I don't know. This is, yeah, this is kind of better cool. than uh, talking <laughs> about the performance stuff. Oh. 
So GRS is the component of ZOS that offers serialization services. So serialization meaning you can queue up for access to a serially reusable resource. That's tough to say. I know. <laughs> he did it very well. He did. He did. So, I'm just giving him props. You. I'm just rec- recognizing. So it stands for – GRS stands for Global Resource Serialization. I think in the original spec it stood for Global Resource Sharing and they changed it. OK. Which is kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, you, Frank, do you know uh, Frank Goberish? Yeah, sure. I think his name was on it. Not- yeah, in fact, uh, up until this uh, episode, I thought that it was sharing. So you changed it. <laughs> for me, it was global resource sharing. All Franks know each other. That's wow. true too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. All the coolest ones do anyway. Yeah. My friend Jeff Fry told me that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're talking about resources, you're, ta- you're talking spe- specifically about storage or anything that can be quantified on the system. Yeah, that's a really good point. It could actually be anything. It's an abstract concept. So for GRS, what basically defines a resource, and this is from an NQDQ system service perspective, this is not latches. That's another thing that's also in the GRS uh, sphere. We're never going to get the performance. No, we're, not. we're never going to get because I'm about to ask what NQDQ. NQ, you got to have to talk about NQ and DQ. I, mean, I, I like ice cream as much as the next the guy. <laughs> I think uh, we're building a queue. Of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. So yeah. So GRS, um, NQ, and DQ are services that basically let you, as a program, queue up for access to a protected resource, which you define what that means, and you give the queue a name. Um, and when you do your request, you say, "I want this resource." And I need exclusive or shared access to it, you know, that kind of thing. And then you're queued up. And when um, the resource is yours, meaning the previous owner dequeued, then you get posted or woken up or whatever by GRS. And then you get to run with access to the resource. So it's another way of guaranteeing uh, data integrity this time as opposed to system integrity, which we were talking about last time. And so, so this is kind of cool because a lot of a lot of stuff that happens for most programs on most systems is there's this concept of polling. And with NQ and DQ, I actually, as the program, can issue an NQ, and then I don't have to worry about anything. I'll be woken up when my time comes. Which is really kind of important because a lot of programs do this kind of, okay, well, I'll sleep for some period of time and then wake up and try again. And then it's always going to take at least that amount of time. Right. Right. And this is is much, much more granular and that's an important differentiator for the platform. And I would imagine, you know, because this isn't somebody typing out a command to do this. This is something happening programmatically probably thousands of times a second. So that's got to be pretty tough to to manage. Like it has to be solid uh, from a fundamental point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, GRS, we actually have kind of global data structures, and that was another big thing with GRS was you know the the so the NQ and DQ mechanisms were available since apparently the '60s, but it also introduced a concept of global resource sharing. Yeah, so, so what, you can what have multiple 
Good question, Jeff. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can have multiple uh, systems that are actually sharing the same cues, and therefore uh, they could share really data sets on shared DASD was the main thing. Right, and this that evolved is, over time. This is a very important component of Sysplex. Right? We talked a little bit about um, when, when um, Dave was on, he talked a little about about this concept of, of having cues. But this is an important component because uh, the, the concept of having multiple systems act like one need this GRS capability because I needed to be able to see is there anybody anywhere who wanted to, to do this, right? Yeah, I, I thought this stuff was cool. I got into it. Um, I did a recent presentation at the first chair I've like been to uh, where I saw you there, Frank. <laughs> oh, we should have had you on the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you presented at that chair. Yeah, and I, I was talking about some GRS concepts and stuff. So were you teaching, basically teaching that GRS to new people? Is that, was that the reason you were doing the presentation or was it just here's some really cool new stuff? Or Actually, I called it Look Out, ZOS Serialization Gotchas. Okay. So you've, you've been talking about all this cool stuff. What are some gotchas associated with it? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> it should be fresh in your mind at this point. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. But, yeah, and it was kind of a way that I could talk about, you know, introductory concepts, but then also talk about, um, or I should say, focus on things that you shouldn't do, or maybe things that you should do. So you did like a goofus and gallant type thing. <laughs> exactly, goofus and gallant. So I didn't know um, you guys knew that. You guys read highlight too. I hey, I had to go to the dentist when I was a kid. Good point. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so what kind of stuff would goofus do? <laughs> That, that's you know I I always I usually oh, skip the gallant side until it was like the end of the month or whatever. It's like <laughs> goofus seems a lot more fun. He always yeah. has the good time. Yeah. <laughs> so what is a GRS goofus? Yeah, <laughs> GRS goofus. Okay, well I'll give you the biggest one that I can uh, I can think of, and people actually do this to varying degrees. We do it a ton. Uh, in no, testing. no, we don't. No, we don't. No, he does it in testing. He oh, it's supposed test. to yes, do it in testing. testing. Yeah, we're supposed to break stuff in <laughs> testing. Sharing DASD or data sets on shared DASD outside of your serialization complex. Oh, that makes sense. Yep. Maybe I that would be a goofiest thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I've seen that happen before. So You've never done it yourself, though. Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> certainly not with one uh, Linux instance that I happen to have up as native and another one in VM. <laughs> so, so there's a goofiest for you. Yeah. Um, they, there's lots of reasons why... It's advantageous to do that, but we certainly would not recommend doing that for anything that uh, you don't have backups of, that you don't, you know, anything that you care about. Um, you know, if you're doing something like transferring files on a work volume, fine, you have control over that. But in order to maintain the integrity of your data, you really want it inside or being accessed from systems inside of your GRS or your serialization complex. And does that work like everything else on ZOS where there's like a policy uh, and, and goals and you put things in the classes type of thing? Sort of. Uh, I guess our policy is a Parm Lab member called GRS RNL. And uh, so we have these resource name lists that allow customers to define kind of exceptions to the way that the 
programmers coded on the macro. This is how I want to serialize my resource. Well, no, it isn't. We're going to do it this way at the installation <laughs> level. So you can do things like like the best example, SysDSN, which is a resource that's associated with ZOS allocations of data sets. So by default, that is a system NQ, which means that the scope is 1LPAR. And we recommend, of course, if you're using GRS and you're using SysPlex or more than one system, then you raise the scope of that to systems. So you get the whole complex. Okay. That way, that's effectively how you do uh, sharing. So that's an easy example. Just by adding one letter. Yeah, <laughs> just one letter. That's yeah. all you do. Oh, yeah. good. That's a- I'm a sysprog. <laughs> another, so another Goofith or Goofus, which was Goofus. Goofus and Gallant. Goofus. Okay. You've never so, seen that, obviously. No, no, but I heard about a obscure reference to it on the show Rest of Development. So. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Yep. Great show. Anyway, so another <laughs> goofus is uh, hardware reserves can get you into trouble. That's the old school serialization method. It's actually an I.O. command that's built into the DASD, huh. which you know we still use. You know, It's still out there. But the problem with it is that it's not very granular or very forgiving. So customers can get themselves into funky deadlock states by mistake. And um, with some of the – well, with uh, Parallel Sysplex and Jira Star, you can eliminate the need for reserves at all because global NQs in the no contention case are actually faster than reserve. And um, as long as you're not sharing your volumes outside of your Sysplex – you can uh, actually convert all reserves to global NQs, which is recommended for uh, GDPS and hyperswap and things like that. Because I guess the reserve doesn't have the concept of what's actually happening on the system. Just as, it, it only has its own view of how it's coming in. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's, 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 that's exactly what it's, what it's doing. It's on the device level, and it's also on the system level. So all reserve cares about is, oh, this system just reserved exclusive access to do I.O. Um, other systems cannot do I.O. until that system releases it. So that's sort of dovetailed into the existing NQ service where we kind of put out an NQ and a reserve so that syst- uh, programs running on the system that has the reserve coordinate amongst themselves. Uh, and it's not a free-for-all from that system. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's technical and gets involved. And complicated quickly, but uh, <laughs> maybe another time. Yeah, <laughs> but it's fun stuff. The next time he least, comes to I do don't... a performance presentation, right, know, right. Discussion, <laughs> we'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, to to go into the performance space, I mean, at least my background <laughs> in performance up until that point was all about things like eliminating resource contention from a GRS perspective. Right. Uh, Ring was a big one. The, GRS ring mode where it's like the token ring uh, to send the global NQs around. Token ring was a technology <laughs> that <laughs> – Oh, I know. I, I went to Marist. <laughs> nice. Uh, but the thing is that with all the IO, IO hops to uh, go from system to system to system, the latency kind of compounded quickly. So, you know, you'd have these performance questions come in. How do I, you know, tune my performance to be better? And then, and then there was also um, in the, the storage management arena, 
you know, in RSM, we're always trying to optimize and do things quicker because every application needs memory. So RSM gets called a lot, you know, just like the supervisor and the dispatcher. So, so you got to go into your performance role already knowing where a lot of the knobs are. Yeah, <laughs> but I didn't know anything about analysis, and that's the really, the really fun stuff too. Is is you know, how do you uh, measure software performance? You know, how do you analyze this massive amount of data that you can end up with and make sense out of it? So, uh, let's say uh, like a performance issue comes in, and we, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, somebody will say, you know, I have a problem, and now it's in your lap to look at it. How, how does that type of uh, process really work? Yeah. Well, first off, we respond quickly. No, you haven't. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was the network's fault. Yeah. Uh, so good question. Uh, yeah, as we were talking, first you really have to define what the problem is because performance is kind of a nebulous term. And so there's a lot of different performance metrics or things you could mean when you're talking about a performance problem. It could be, are you experiencing that your, your batch jobs are running longer than they used to? Um, is it a CPU cost issue that you're having where your CPU usage has spiked and that is now causing your four-hour rolling average to go up or something like that? So, you know, is it the amount of memory that you're using? Oh, you know, all of a sudden I've got a, a real storage issue or something like that. So you want to define what the problem is so you can figure out what's the most effective data to collect. Um, so so when you're in your old job, you would get those questions about uh, around the storage side then, right? Hey, uh, suddenly we're using more of uh, a storage above the line than we ever were before. Fix it kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, well, somebody would get questions like that, probably <laughs> RSM level three, but we would talk about it as right. a team, you know, what can we do and stuff like that. But so, it had already gone through the, the filtering before they said, this is a memory type issue or, yeah. or is it just a gut feeling? And yeah, no, it, level two would have looked at it, you know, and, and worked with, uh, the RSM level three team and collected SVC dumps because, you know, that's what, that's what we do in level two is we get SVC dumps and look at things. So I imagine at some point you, you, you compare what you're looking at with a baseline. So how, how, does, uh, how do you prepare a, a system to, you know, recreate a problem or, or, look, or look at the dump? Um, okay, so that's a very good question. <laughs> in system tests or, you know, even in uh, development directly on, on maybe VM system or something like that, we could try to mimic what the customer environment was like. We try to figure out what are the important factors uh, to their workload. It's just kind of a very tricky thing to do to figure out what's a good point for comparison. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that's exactly what we would do is we would try to uh, run a similar type of workload and gather diagnostic data, try to look at the delta and you, so you have a like a like a template idea of what a, a basic system should look like, um, and are there different types of driver systems or templates for for uh, different types of configurations? So you don't have to like build the universe. Oh, absolutely. For okay. Yeah. So like in the performance group, for instance, uh, we actually have a um, infrastructure team that maintains and creates new software drivers 
different releases, different products, uh, so that um, just to enable our um, our test team and our analysts to be able to, you know, get to that critical uh, point in their investigation more quickly. Um, so I, I just want to st- take a step back. Remember, uh, a lot of our listeners are probably relatively new to the platform, and there were some things – Words that we throw, throw around, we all throw around. That yeah. kind of one of them is uh, uh, a NSVC dump. What is, what is that? <laughs> it's basically a dump of the memory on the image and some other fancy things to uh, you know help debuggers make sense of the data. So um, when when you talked about recreating the the environment that causes the client's problem, uh, you you rely heavily on that dump because it gives you an idea of the state of the environment when it died, right? Right. As, as developers um, or testers, we're all going to be familiar with our favorite control blocks and structures and what state they should be in. And we're going to want to go look them up in the dump and see, okay, you know, so is this field okay? You know, is that field uh, you're looking within whatever tolerance or maybe it's out of whack. I don't know. And just try to understand how the code is actually working by looking at the data it's dealing with. And is that, uh, are, are those in the actual dump of the storage or is that one of those, um, other things you get like in a register? So usually that's in the storage itself, but a lot of times if you have a dump because – so there's different kinds of dumps. You can get a console dump, which basically means I entered a console command that said dump the system. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's also time of failure dumps where you've got stuff in the registers that may be significant. Uh, there's also slip dumps. like uh, So you can have a special trap. We call it a slip trap where you say as an operator – I want the system to take a dump when such conditions are met. Uh, And then you might have something in the registers to look at because you know that when these conditions are met, you're executing, uh, you know, an instruction in a module. And you're looking at the program listing and you're saying, okay, well, I know this register should have my return code for that NQ I did or something like that. That's that's some uh, pretty extensive detective work right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the fun part. We also, uh, I just want to quickly do this because you talked about level one, level two, and level oh, three. Yeah. Let's let's just Whoops. describe what those are. <laughs> okay, well, uh, they're basically different levels of defect support that IBM has. Uh, of course, I'm talking about um, ZOS, so that that structure. So level one is your triage. They are the first point of contact. Level two uh, is defect support, and they'll usually get involved when there is uh, maybe a really, you know, obvious defect or um, maybe a question or something like that that uh, needs component-specific knowledge. So they're usually a little bit more component-based. Level one will have to cover basically a broad stroke of components. And then level three um, is kind of like additional debugging, but mostly delivering uh, fixes to customer-reported problems. So they're more specialized uh, the further you get up the, up the chain. Yeah. 
And um, uh, at least, you know, in the current organizational structure, level three is embedded in the development teams. So okay. developers will, you know, some, the, the dynamics work kind of differently in different teams, but some developers will kind of switch in and out of a level three role, which is kind of fun. I spent a long time in level three for GRS and kind of enjoyed that uh, sort of customer-facing, you know, debugging role. Yeah, so you got to talk to uh, customers when they're <laughs> maybe not at their happiest. <laughs> well, sort of. Was I, the good thing was I didn't have to talk to them directly to do anything except really negotiate the target date for the fix. Oh, uh, by then they were pretty happy, right? Because they except they wanted it yesterday. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I always felt bad looking at tickets because they're all in all caps, and I always felt like they were yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about performance analysis uh, a little bit and looking at baselines and deltas and stuff. And I did want to quickly mention that. Hopefully, you know, in the future, the not-too-distant future, we'll be relying on things like operational analytics and trend detection, anomaly detection, and things like that a lot more for performance triage. Uh, and I, I know, you know, IBM is, is working on this tool called Workload Insights, which is kind of going in that direction. It ingests SMF98 records and um, can show anomalies in the data. Yeah, because we're gathering all that information in SMF anyway. We have a rich uh, body of historical data we can base things off of. Uh, it seems like a really good place to make use of that analytic power as well. Yeah. I think that's something that Anthony Sophia talked about. A little bit, yeah. Little yeah. Bit. So that should be really exciting stuff. And it's, it's all visualized, too, for you. So it's a little bit better than just looking at two numbers <laughs> before and after. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Also... Um, there are some customer-facing tools. You guys don't mind if I talk about this stuff, right? He's, sure. he's so. plugging ZOS tools. Is that, is, that, is that allowed? Is that a problem? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I think we'll let it go this time. Yeah. Okay. But, but don't make a habit of it. Right, right. <laughs> so I did want to talk about a tool called ZBNA. It stands for Batch Network Ana Analyzer. Yeah. And uh, Checks out. <laughs> Done acronyms. Yeah. So today they actually released ZBNA 181, which has uh, the data set encryption estimator function. And so this is really cool. So um, the tool actually does a lot. Um, the main focus of it is you can kind of get a handle on what your batch workload looks like. Uh, through it ingests and visualizes SMF30s, creates some neat Gantt charts and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you could kind of see dependencies and things like that. Uh, it also has other features such as um, estimating the benefit that you'll get from ZEDC compression and um, the new thing, which is estimating cost of data set encryption. Performance cost, not, uh, yeah, like, not like, dollar cost. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Performance cost. Thank you for that. <laughs> so it works by ingesting uh, SMF 42 subtype 6 records to kind of get a feel for what your I.O. environment is like, which is pretty uh, nifty because that lets them get it down into the details. There's also a tool which uh, technical sales uses 
called CP3000, which can kind of give you a ballpark estimate. That sounds futuristic. <laughs> I know, right? It sounds kind of like C3PO. <laughs> CP3000. And what, is, what does that do? <laughs> so CP3000 uh, does a lot as well. And um, I think it's, it's mainly used by technical sales. Again, um, unlike ZBNA, ZBNA is a free as-is tool that's available for download. But CP3000 kind of estimates uh, using a different uh, data source, kind of gives you a ballpark estimate of um, data set encryption. And uh, I think it has other capacity planning functions as well. Oh, there's the CP part. Yeah, yep, there you that's go. probably it. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to uh, leave a link for downloading the, the VBNA tool. And the, the the idea, just the idea of capacity planning, is is something that I never heard before. Starting working on Z, uh, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Just that concept of capacity planning versus like raw performance, like the way that a customer might, might look at it. Sure. So, uh, performance and capacity planning are kind of intertwined, as as you mentioned. Uh, as a customer, you want your workload to run as quickly or as efficiently as you need it to, but um, when it comes to paying for uh, engines, basically CPU time, you don't want to pay for more than you need either. So capacity planning is about figuring out how much CPU, how much memory you need um, in order to run your workload, and then using our wonderful tools like Workload Manager to enact a policy so that um, workload manager can kind of balance the uh, different jobs that are running at the same time in your batch window so that they all uh, complete by whatever their deadline is or their priority is. And there's different uh, settings, of course. Oh, yeah. We're going we're gonna to spend like a whole month and a half on <laughs> workload manager at some yeah, point. Yeah, we, we have uh, – I have – Top men involved. <laughs> it is our goal to do that. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm actually looking forward to to that whole discussion. But it's that concept of meeting business goals versus faster is better. Um, it, it's a. Uh, it's an interesting balance that uh, I think is again unique to the platform. Well, yeah. If you th think about the fact that on other platforms, the capacity is about the number of machines, right? Mm -hmm. So we do capacity planning by saying, well, we've done this by six machines and we're getting, we're getting stuck. So we believe that three more machines will solve the problem in, in a world where, in a world, in a world where, uh, you're really talking about you've bought one machine and it's not a thousand dollar box. I really want to be able to identify what is the, not just the fastest, but the, the best use of the money that yeah, I The spend. smartest. Yeah. And uh, another unique feature to the Z platform is being able to activate capacity on demand. So you can actually turn on additional capacity when you need it. And I think that can be policy driven as well, right? Yep. CPM, capacity yes. provisioning manager. Right. Checks out. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. I don't so, want to get that wrong. Horst will be mad at me. <laughs> oh, he's going to be mad anyway. Yeah. So, 
Uh, all right. So we've, we've, we've talked about a bunch of different things and actually we kind of got around to at least the capacity and a little bit of the performance stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't really feel bad about the fact that we're going to say this is a performance, uh, uh, session, even though we didn't spend very much time. It's kind of a core technologies performance. Yeah. This was actually awesome that we got a chance to talk about, um, a lot of memory based pieces because that's, really important it's nothing i would have ever thought to ask somebody explicitly about but once we got into it i'm like this is cool we need to talk about this (laughs) so uh, you'll have to come back and talk more about performance uh uh, and then in another episode where we actually give you time to talk about performance (laughs) i'd be happy to this is great yeah you won't say that next time (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) And hopefully someday we do have him back on to talk about actual performance. Yeah, I think there are going to be a bunch of people who can talk performance, but I do like the fact that as he's starting out in it, he probably has an earlier perspective, one that will relate to people who are new to the platform. So we definitely want to have him back. Although, you know, you really can't complain about what he just said. It would be really funny just to keep having him back in under the pretense of performance and just asking about completely different stuff each time. Yeah, let's see how many times we can do it before he says no. Social media stuff, uh, housekeeping. Yeah. Um, at Terminal Talk on the Twitter. And the mainframe subreddit slash r slash mainframe. And if you've got questions or comments, uh, contact at TerminalTalk.net. And don't forget to write a review for us out on the iTunes or the Google Play or the Stitcher. Yeah, we really would like to, you know, do shout-outs to people. Read yeah. some uh, fan mail. That would be cool. Yeah. Maybe we should make some up. Terminal Talk, episode 13, Joe Gentile. That's not right. Gentile. Joe Gentile. That's close enough. Yeah. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.